Amen. How's everybody tonight? All right. We're in First uh, Peter chapter 4, a couple of praise reports. Um, we had our uh, first growth track, revised growth track, Sunday, and uh, it was a great turnout, and 42 people joined the church that day, so it was wonderful, really good. That's kind of like old days. It's, it's good to see that happening again, you know? COVID's gone. Amen. So that was encouraging. Uh, we're going to, tonight, I, I wanted to read the verses we're going to be covering uh, just to, so you can kind of get it all at once, and then I'm going to break it down and teach it. But how many of you love the Word tonight? Amen. Anybody been reading ahead and, and you've been reading through First Peter? All right, one, hallelujah, two. All right. Uh, so we're going to get into it tonight, but I, I have it on the screen. It ought to be ready to put up there, all right? So let's stand together, and we're just going to read through these verses, and then I'm going to teach them, and it's good stuff. You can't beat the Word of God. I mean, you cannot beat the Word of God. Can everybody say, this is God's Word? This is God's Word. All right. If anyone speaks, this is where we're going to be starting tonight, verse 11. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. Then in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Next, verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial. How many of you are thinking, this is strange? What you're, what I'm going through, this is strange, right? He said, don't think that. Uh, because that has come to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Why? Because verse 13, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. That when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Yeah, that's, that's good stuff. Amen. If you're reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Oh, what a verse. On their part, he's blasphemed. But on your part, he is glorified. Verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer. This is what you're not to be in trouble for. As a Christian, you shouldn't have to be suffering because you did these things. Murderer, anybody in here killed anybody lately? I want to meet you afterwards. We have somebody that wants to take you somewhere. No. All right. Let none of you suffer as a... Now, he's talking to Christians here. Don't suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a... uh Uh-oh. Busybody. Of course, that never happens in church. In other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed for it, but let him glorify God in this matter. 17. For the time has come for judgment to begin. Where does it begin? At the, house of God. At the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Everybody say, trouble. trouble. Now, verse 18 is our last verse. Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? If we, bear, if we get in by the blood alone, where's the sinner? 
Mm. That's why I say letters that burn. You, you can smell the fire coming off of these verses, some of them, right? All right. Father, we just thank you for your word. As we get into it, Lord, teach us, strengthen us, give us wisdom and insight, illumination. Help us, Lord, to grasp it and grow by it and be rooted and grounded in it, immovable till the day of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, perk up and listen, you're going to need this. Amen. Now, um, last time we closed out with verse 10, of course, and a comparison between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. Remember that comparison? The Jordan River feeds into both the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. But at the Sea of Galilee, it flows in and it flows out. So, so water flows in and water flows out. So it's alive. It's teeming with fish. I've been on the Sea of Galilee. Just a quick test. How many would like to go to Israel if we... Oh, my goodness. I have never had a response like that. That feels like a mandate. All right. Anyway, I was on the Sea of Galilee and um, ate a fish from there that we caught. It's called St. Peter's fish. No kidding. Most popular fish there. Anyway. Um, But the Sea of Galilee is teeming with life. But the Dead Sea is dead. Why is it dead? Because the Jordan also flows into the Dead Sea, but nothing flows out. So you can have life coming in, but if life doesn't go out, it, it, it dies. It stagnates. Uh, it grows bad things. Okay? So our Christian life is supposed to be like the Sea of Galilee. I'm going to tell you, if you're not giving out somehow, using the gift that God gave you somehow, then you're, you're hurting for it. You may not know it, but there's something that is not coming into your life because you're not giving out. You're, you're going to stagnate. You're going to wake up one day and say, what's all this for? I, I, I plugged into a whole new world when I started ministering. I mean, it just, and that didn't take long for me to get in. And ever since then, you know, Ronnie and I were talking, uh, the worship leader, and I was telling him, you know, Ronnie, I can't tell you how many times just ministering to people has been therapeutic for me because I can come in dragging, you know, maybe having dealt with some tough stuff during the week. But as soon as I start ministering the word and blessing others, something is lifted. Amen. You know, it's, it's therapeutic to give. So we talked about that. So how many of you want to be a Sea of Galilee? Hey, come on. How many wants to be a Dead Sea? No, nobody wants to be a Dead Robert, watch out now. I know you. His wife pulled his arm down. He didn't even know what he's amen. He's just, yeah. Good girl. You caught him. I was wondering about him. All right. Now, Peter continues against a background suffering and persecution. Remember, uh, 1 Peter is to comfort suffering people. That's what the letter is for. Because they're being persecuted in Nero's uh, Rome. And it's, it's bad. We're going to talk about it a little bit more in a minute. But... Uh, There's all kinds of suffering, horrible persecution going on. And he's encouraging believers to respond to suffering by serving others. Okay? This is what their spiritual gifts are for. And then he concludes by saying that 
suffering. Now catch this. How many of you like suffering? I don't. But here's what he's going to tell us. Suffering will sharpen some things in your life. Now, I'm not asking for suffering. I've never had to pray for it. It's always found me. All right? But, but, but he's going to tell us now, we need to catch this tonight, that suffering sharpens us in some key areas. First, it sharpens us in our perception of the Word of God. He says in verse 11, if anybody speaks, now he's talking about teaching or preaching, ministering the word. If anybody is ministering the word in any way, let him speak as the oracles of God. The word for oracles is from the Greek word logos. We know the word logos, and it means divine utterance. It's it's the utterance of God. Peter uses this word to describe what should characterize our preaching and teaching as spirit-filled believers. Uh, Right now, I'm ministering to you not the utterances of Jeff, but the utterances of God. I'm teaching you of Jeff. I'd lose you in a week if all I gave you was the utterances of Jeff. He didn't lay his hand on me and say, now, Jeff, go give them your utterances, your opinions, what you think. No, my calling is to break open the word of God and give you the utterance of God. Preach the word. That's the call of every minister. Preach the word. Don't leave it. And don't water it down. Don't dilute it. Don't pollute it. Don't apologize for it. Preach the word. All right? So we're to speak when we minister God's word with Holy Spirit illumination and divine authority. So that's what I've done my entire life. And I'm going to do it till the day I go home. Even though they were suffering, they were not to let their suffering intimidate them where they diluted or compromised God's word. And I've got to tell you, I'm so sorry to say that's happening in pulpits all over America. We're diluting and, and watering down and, and uh, uh, compromising the word because we don't want those big givers to walk out. Or we don't want so-and-so to be offended with us. We want to grow. So I'm not going to offend people. I want them staying, not leaving. So we water it down, and, and so much of what we hear is just a glorified, motivational speech. It's not the word being opened up. I've learned, preach the word. If some leave, others will come. Because there's a, there is a, um, there's a famine for the Word of God out there. People want to hear the Word of God. There's literally a famine for it. Tell me the Word of God. Quit watering it down. And suffering ought to also sharpen our perception about the work of God. Not just the Word of God, but the work of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. So if anyone ministers, now that is supposed to be all Christians are supposed to minister. It comes from a word meaning to serve, to render service, to wait on someone, to care for their needs. That's the word. If anyone ministers, we're to serve one another, says Peter, with God-given ability. Ability. 
We're to use our God-given strength and energy in helping one another. The best way you can minister to others is find out what your gift is. And that's not hard to do. Find out what God has put in you and then minister to one another. Okay? How do you find out what God's called you to do? Why, pay real close attention to what appeals to you in the world of ministry or church work. Pay real close attention to what your heart is pulled to. Pay attention to it. Because God leads one way is through divine desire planted in your heart. I started preaching, just don't want to talk about myself long, but quickly I'll tell you, this is my own experience. I started preaching, not because I heard some voice from heaven or had a cloud formation in the sky. I started preaching because this burning desire began in my heart that I couldn't quench. Couldn't escape it, couldn't get rid of it. Just burned to communicate God's word. Till finally I had to, or I was going to pop. Right? And it's never left me. It's never left me. Now, there have been hard times. Times where it wasn't some raging bonfire. But that motivation to minister God's word has never left me. It was a divine plant. And and you, you have a gift. Uh, And and God's desire is that it break out into ministering, serving one another with it. So pay close attention to your heart. When you look at church work and you hear about church work and you watch others doing church work, what pulls you? you know, I'm looking back here at one of my elders, Frank Alfredo and precious Eleanor, dear friends. And they've been through hell and back with me. But watch this now. Frank, early on, began to get a burden for married uh, couples. And it just haunted him in a good way. And so one day he just connected the dots and said, well, I guess I'm supposed to minister to married couples. So he started. And now there's hundreds of people that have gone through he and Eleanor's counseling ministry, uh, the intimate encounters class we teach upstairs. Marriages have been saved because God gave him that bird. Where'd that come from? That didn't come from Frank's flesh. It sure didn't come from the devil. Where'd it come from? So, so this is free advice. You don't have to give me a dime for it. Just pay close attention. What pulls up, what appeals to you in the work of God? If you've never even thought about that, start thinking about it. So in the kingdom of God, the way up is down. As Jesus literally served us when he was on the earth, we're to serve one another somehow, some way. After he had washed the disciples' feet, Can you imagine God washing your feet? Jesus said to them, I've given you an example. A what? An example. That you should do as I have done to you. Serve one another. So suffering, when you're going through suffering, it sharpens your perception of the word of God and it sharpens your perception of the work of God. And then also of the worship of God. He says in verse 11, the latter part of it, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
Now, the goal of all ministry, I don't care what it is, uh, uh, is to bring praise and honor and glory to God. That's the goal of all ministry. Not to point to the minister, but it's to point to the object of the minister's devotion and message and life, and that's Christ. All ministry is to glorify and honor and bring praise and point up to Him. Amen? Amen. Jesus said, even answered prayer should bring glory to God. He said in John 14, 13, I will do whatever you ask in my name. Why will I do whatever you ask in my name? So the Father may be glorified in the Son. So even when you get an answer to prayer, the Father is glorified in the Son. And then he encourages the persecuted church of that day to think it not strange concerning the fiery trial. Don't say to yourself, well, I didn't know this was coming. I didn't expect this. I didn't anticipate this. Every person living godly in Christ Jesus should anticipate, at least from time to time, being persecuted. He that will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I don't want to name that or claim that. It's always found me. If I live godly in Christ... Or if we have a church that lives godly in Christ and preaches the word and worships the true and the living God, we will be persecuted. The phrase fiery trial is from a Greek word meaning literally is set on fire. (laughs) That sounds wonderful. That's why I call it letters that burn. You feel it? All right. Peter has already told them they can expect to be refined in the fire in chapter 1 verse 7. As gold is refined in a furnace, Peter says, don't think it unusual that you should pass through a season of suffering. You will. You will. The church of that day was experiencing the first of ten persecuting Caesars. Ten in a row. The persecution under Nero was the first legal persecution. One church historian says this about Nero's persecution. Its features stand alone in the annals of human barbarity. Inventive cruelty sought out new ways of torture to satiate the bloodthirsty Nero, who was the most cruel emperor to ever reign. He was crazy, and he persecuted and tortured God's people. The gentle followers of Jesus, i got to tell you the truth, were fed to wild animals. Can you imagine that? They were wrapped in animal skins and put into arenas and fed to wild animals who had not been able to eat for days. They would starve them and then turn them loose on them. They were turned into human torches to light Nero's garden. Uh, Often, Nero would go and mingle with the crowd and watch his own dirty work. And even though the public was a Accustomed to public executions, even they were moved with pity, according to Fox's Book of Martyrs and other historical documents. Uh, They were moved with pity for the Christians who were putting through such horrible uh, torture. And it doesn't surprise me that Nero died uh, when he was, I think, either, I think he was 32, 33, young man. He died in A.D. 68 two years before the fall of Jerusalem and the scattering of God's people worldwide. So two years before Jerusalem was leveled, 
he died by his own hand. Does that surprise you? How in the world could you live inside the mind that did that to people? You couldn't. Now we gain comfort from the words of Jesus to the thief on the cross that though they suffered harshly, it didn't last long and they found themselves in paradise with God, resting in the arms of their Savior. But Peter says, don't be surprised. Don't consider it strange or unexpected if people mock you, make fun of you, lie about you, slander you, target you, because you're an outspoken believer living godly in Christ Jesus. And folks, those days are getting worse and worse in America. Can I give you a little warning signal here? That it's not what it was when I the same country not the same america Uh uh-uh it's very different and now there is open persecution against god's people simply for taking a stand quoting a bible verse peter says rather than thinking they're suffering strange they should rejoice to the extent that you are partakers of christ's sufferings that when his glory is revealed you may also be glad with exceeding joy verse 13 Peter was likely thinking back to the early days of the church when he and the other disciples first experienced persecution for walking with Christ. Uh, Right after they were baptized in the Holy Spirit and the the power of God came upon them, that's when the devil came at them. And they preached, they performed miracles all throughout Jerusalem. They were shaking the city. And the enraged Jewish authorities locked them up And an angel came and set them free. Amen. Amen. Then the authorities seized them again, commanded them, don't preach in Jesus. You can preach all you want, but don't preach in Jesus' name. And whipped them with the 39 lashes across the back. But what did they do? With bruised and bleeding backs, they left the court and they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Wow, rejoicing. After 39 whiplashes, are you kidding me? Most of us are calling an attorney. And we're wanting to be taken to ER. They walked out rejoicing. Where did that come from? came from the Spirit of God being upon them. Spirit of God and of glory rests upon you. So Peter's words are born out of his own fiery experience, no doubt about it. These early disciples, folks, they were amazing. You could not stop them. Matter of fact, lock them up in prison, and they won the jailers to Christ. Uh, Or spent their time writing the eternal epistles we have in the New Testament. Turn them loose, and they turn the world upside down. Beat them, and you make them partakers of Christ's sufferings, and fill their souls with joy. Kill them, and you promote them to glory. You could not knock a good Christian down. A Christian was in a win-win situation. Come on, everybody, say amen. You may need to remember this someday. Next, Peter assures them, verse 14, if you're reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. On their part, he's blasphemed, but on your part, he's glorified. If you're reproached, that's a strong word. It means to disgrace or insult, to reproach, to mock, or to curse someone. 
If that happens to you, for the name of Christ, it, it literally means insults being cast into your teeth. That's the Greek meaning. You're, just, you're being hit like in your teeth with the fists of harsh words. Very unpleasant experience. I'm never going to tell you I would like that or I have liked it when it's happened to me. But Peter assures you're blessed, you're happy, and you are somebody that ought to be envied. That's what he said. To be envied. Amen. Amen. Glory comes from the word doxa, because the Spirit of God and the glory rests on you. Doxa means brightness and splendor. At the very moment you're being reproached for Christ's name, the Spirit uh, of God and the brightness of His glory is resting on you. Now, Peter next is going to meddle a little bit. How many of you will let him? All right, let's go. Here we go. He says, now here, let me give you four reasons you as Christians should never suffer. Since we're talking about suffering, let me tell you four reasons why you should never suffer. They're all self-imposed, the reasons I'm going to give you. First one, let none of you suffer as a murderer, second, a thief, third, an evildoer, and fourth, a busybody. Let's talk about the murderer real quick. I'll skim right over these. It's interesting that many of the converts in the early church had come from very rough, very wild backgrounds, all right? Galatia, for instance, uh, was known as where the vendetta was practiced. Sounds like the mafia. The vendetta, that's what it was called. The vendetta was practiced. What was it? People inherited an obligation to assassinate someone who had killed a member of their clan or their family. Now, son, you've been born and raised to go take him out because he killed your mama. Now, go fulfill the vendetta. How's that? I'm trying, you know. <laughs> okay, Dad. <laughs> the thing about it is, murder was a common way of settling differences. Yep. That's going to go over big on radio, I can tell you. Um, the Lord Jesus himself was crucified in between a couple of murderous desperados. Both of them. The very cross on which he hung had been originally prepared for the murderer Barabbas. Murder was common. So Peter also knew all about a group, not just the Vendetta, but a group called Sicari. The Sicari. And the Sicari was an outlaw band whose name came from the word Sicca, as in Sickum. I'm sorry, I couldn't help it. But it meant dagger man. The Saqqara, dagger men. And they're described by the historian Josephus and also mentioned in the book of Acts. And, and they would go out as a, a member of the Saqqara or Sakari, and they would take you out with a short dagger. And they were very common in those days. So when he says, don't ever suffer for a murderer, as a murderer, he had a reason for saying that to these people. Because it was everywhere. All right? Y'all are quiet. Amen. Now, 
These were zealots that hated Rome, the, the, the Sicarii. Um, and it's, it's surmised that one of the Lord's own disciples, Simon Zelotes, Simon the Zealot, might have come out of this murderous sect. So Peter says, you're different now. Don't forget, you're different now. Have I lost my mic? It's freaking out a little bit. Okay. I didn't even know. Did y'all know? You knew. Okay, sorry. You're different now. The Lord of life, not death, lives in you. In, in short, never bring the suffering of consequences for murder upon yourself. Then Peter mentions the miscreant. Let none of you suffer as a thief. The word thief is kleptes. Kleptomaniac comes from it. Kleptes. It means somebody who steals by fraud or in secret. In Bible times, theft was dealt with harshly. A man could be hung, hung for stealing a sheep. There'd be no Americans left if this kind of law was in place. The consequences of theft bring the kind of suffering a Christian should never experience. Don't suffer as a thief. Don't do that to yourself. Then next, Peter mentions malcontents. Let none of you suffer as an evildoer. What was an evildoer? It, was, it pointed to somebody with an evil disposition. This person is always looking to cause trouble, to stir up the pot, to bring injury and harm. They're always, everywhere they go, trouble follows. Know anybody like that? Everywhere they go, trouble follows. Sometimes, you know, we'll be doing church and somebody will end up coming here and we start finding out everywhere they go, there's trouble, there's discord, there's talking and whispering and gossip and everywhere they go. So th this is th the malcontent. Malcontents, discontents, they're not happy with anything. So they got to take away your happiness because they're so miserable. Jesus was opposite. He went about everywhere doing good, healing all those who were oppressed of the devil. Uh, and that's what we're to be. And then finally, Peter mentions the meddler. We know about the meddler. Let none of you suffer as a busybody in other people's matters. In other words, mind your own beeswax, right? Busybody comes from a Greek word meaning to oversee things that are somebody else's business. Who appointed you to oversee my business, right? Have you ever known one of those? Have you ever been one of those? Don't raise your hand. Are you one of those now? Busybody. They feel like they're anointed and appointed to oversee your stuff and to tell you how to live your life. Usually those, as a matter of fact, almost every time, those who tell you how to live your own life don't know how to live their own. But now they're experts. So anyway, uh, don't be a busybody. Don't suffer for being a busybody because, boy, it can turn around and bite you if you stick your nose where it doesn't belong. So next, Peter mentions the suffering for the right reason. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. The name Christian was a name of derision among the heathen of Peter's day. If you said you were a Christian, it was bad on you. Well-bred people avoided pronouncing the name Christian. And when they were forced to do so, they made a kind of an apology. Christian. It comes from the Greek word Christiano meaning the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And only with time did it evolve into a name of honor. 
You know, there was a time in America when you said you were a Christian, it was a an honor. If you said you went to church, it was honorable. If you said you, you believed in biblical morality, you were an honorable American citizen. No more. It's going right back to being a name of, oh, you're a Christian? One of those, Bible thumper, right wing, homo this, that, and the other, homophobe this, phobe that, phobe the other. You know, that's not even a good use of the word. If somebody calls you a homophobe, phobe is from phobos, and it means to have a dread terror of something. So when you're called a homophobe or a Islamophobe or whatever, they're telling you, you've got a dread terror of this. And no, I don't. I don't have a dread terror of it. I just don't agree with the lifestyle. I don't see it in Scripture. I see that God is against it in Scripture, just like in, in adultery or fornication or bestiality or pedophilia or anything else. He's against it, but it doesn't make me in dread terror of it. It's, it's a misuse of the word. That's just me, Jeff. I'm a word guy. It bugs me. Amen. If you suffer from being associated with Jesus Christ, glorify God, Peter says. Verse 17, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. Now, what does that mean? Because we're not going to be judged for sin, right? The blood of Jesus has covered our sin. So he says, the time has come for judgment to begin first at the house of God. Now, the judgment he's referring to is the outbreak of persecution against the church. Catch this, everybody. Peter is saying God was using the persecution to cleanse the church, to purify the church, to separate the real from the fake, the phony from the genuine. Because it's okay to say you're a Christian if you're getting something out of it. But if you start suffering for it, all of a sudden, I'm not so sure I'm a Christian. I don't know about this Christian stuff. And all of a sudden, you disappear. Because now you're paying a price for it, and it shows that you're not real. Because if you really love Jesus, you will suffer for his name. Okay? So at the time of Peter's writing, false doctrine had found a real home in the church, nothing new under the sun. And he suggests that persecution will quickly sift the real from the fake. The false teachers were getting money. They were getting dishonest gain. They were charging for their messages. They were making false promises in order to extract money from the people. They were living good lives off of their false teaching. Is there anything new under the sun? All right, now, Peter says when they start paying for it, if they start getting lumped in with the Christians that are getting persecuted, you're going to find they disappear from the church. Because they're not about to pay a suffering price for the name of Christ. 
So he says, so God is using persecution to purify and purge and prune the house of God. John chimed in with this. John said in 1 John 2.19, these people left our churches, but they never really belonged with us. Otherwise, they would have stayed with us. When they left, it proved they did not belong with us. Because, folks, real faith is persevering faith. Can I say that again? Real faith is persevering faith. You don't run when the going gets rough. I'm not saying you don't have down moments. I'm not saying you don't have times when you're not feeling all full of fire like I expressed a little while ago about preaching. But you don't leave Christ because you're paying a suffering price for his name. But these people were. And John said, let them go because they weren't a part of us. I like to put it this way. Those that are with you cannot leave. And those that aren't with you cannot stay. I need to say that again. That 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 gained some traction. Let me watch this now. I've pastored a long time. All right, I've seen it over and over again. Those that are with you, they cannot leave. They will not leave. But those that are not with you, no matter how much you try to talk them into staying, they cannot stay. So the suffering of persecution has a purging effect. We're almost done. The suffering of Christians can also be a warning to the world. The suffering of believers can should be a warning to the world. Here's the deal. If, he says in verse 17, if it, the persecution and the judgment, begins with us first, what will be the end of those who don't obey the gospel? If the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? The fact that God actually judges his own people should sound an alarm to the ungodly. If he judges his children, he won't hesitate to judge the lost. Now, the Bible says in Hebrews, he chastens us so that we will not be judged along with the world. So he chastens us, not for sin, but it's corrective. The world he judges for their sin. Okay? So he's saying to the world, world, you ought to pay attention. Because if God is allowing his own church to be chastened and judged and purged and purified, where does that leave you who don't know his son and have rejected his son? It ought to be a warning signal to you. It ought to be a flag. You better get right with God, because if he lets his own people go through this, where where does it leave you at the great white throne judgment? Sometimes, everybody, judgment overtakes the wicked in this life. Sometimes. But often, it seems as if they're getting away with it. But the wicked never escape. Never. Their judgment is simply postponed. The Bible is clear that all of the unsaved, all of the unsaved, are going to stand trial at the great white throne judgment where Jesus sits on the throne. It's Jesus on that great white throne. And the books are open and the book of life. And whosoever's name was not found written in the Lamb's book of life is cast into a Christless eternity. 
That's what it says. So even though it looks like the wicked are getting away with all kinds of wickedness and nothing's happening to them, listen, their judgment may be paused, but it's never totally removed. It's coming. Their foot will slip. They will face God, and they will answer for all the sin the blood of Jesus could have covered. And he closes with this wonderful advice. So let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. I love that verse because when you're overwhelmed with suffering, you commit it into the hands of a faithful God. That's what Jesus did. What did he say? Into your hands. I commit my spirit. And he committed his whole eternal outcome into the hands of a faithful creator. So if you're suffering tonight, God sees it. God knows it. God has not forsaken you. God goes through it with you. Has experienced, Jesus has been tempted at all points like we are yet without sin. And he's walking with you through it. And you can trust your suffering into his hands because he is faithful. He is faithful. I close with this statement. God's too loving to be unkind. He's too wise to make any mistakes. And he's too powerful to be thwarted from his purpose. Amen. All right. I'm going to, if you have any questions, if you want to give a question or two, ask me a question or two, I want to take them because we're doing great with time. And uh, so I'm going to take a couple of questions if anybody has one. So raise your hand if you've got a question, Bible question about what I've covered or not covered, just something about the Bible you've wondered about. Is there anybody here? Johnny? I was reading in uh, in Genesis, and I wish I had my Bible right now where I could open it up. When they go through uh, talking about how God created the world and, mm-hmm. and six days rested on the seventh, <clears throat> up there in the very beginning, I think it was day three, it says that he created the light. The but light? The light, I believe. The light was the first thing. The first thing. Okay. That was the first day. That was the first day. That was the first day. Okay. And then it, later on, it talked about where uh, he created the, the moon, the stars, and the sun. Yeah. Like the fourth day or something. Yeah, the like constellations. That. So what was the light? It was him. Because people say, oh, look at that. Genesis can't be right because he said he created light first and then later he created the stars. Well, where did the light come from if there was no stars, no sun, no moon? Right. Well, in book of Revelation it says in heaven there will be no, no need for a sun or a moon or the stars because the light of the Lamb lightens that new world. Yeah. So... It's going to be literally his face, his the light that it, that emanates from him, purer light than a thousand suns. That help?
God is light. Yeah. Yeah. He he yeah, he released light, but he made the, the constellations the sun and the moon later. But it, initially that was not the source of light. Day 1, he created light light uh, emanated from him something that was not dependent on the stars, sun or moon. And and I can accept that. That's Oh no, no, Jesus was never created. Yeah, but but God, the whole Godhead was involved in the creation. Remember, you have God the Father spoke. We're told in John 1 uh, that nothing was made that was not made through the fingertips of Christ. And it says the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. So, and so the entire Godhead, the Trinity, all three involved in the creation. So, no, Jesus was not created because in the beginning was the Word, was with God, and Word was God. He always has been and always will be. So, no, he was not created. Uh, the cults say he was created, but he was not. He's God the Son. So the light came from the Trinity. The, it came from God the Father, God the Son. It came from the Godhead. How it manifested, I don't know, but I do know I'm good with it because it was light that was not dependent on the constellations. Okay? All right. Last Wednesday, I'd asked a question in First Peter 4, verse 5, when it talks about how Christ will judge the living and the dead. Uh-huh. And uh, my question was on how he will judge the dead, and that's referring to the great white throne judgment and the judgment seat of Christ, correct? Mm-hmm. So it brought what I wanted to ask tonight was when we leave this earth and we die, are we judged immediately? Somebody lost or somebody said or so huh? it's someone who let's say I, I died today. Would I would I be judged? No, when I died? not for sin, because Paul, the apostle, made it very clear. There's no soul sleep. That's. That teaching came from an extra-biblical source uh, where you just go to sleep. When you die, you just go to sleep until Christ returns. Then you wake up like some ancient Rip Van Winkle. And I was awake all those, you know, millennia. No. There's no purgatory. That's a Catholic teaching that uh, came about in the early Middle Ages. And purgatory uh, was used I don't want to offend anybody in here that came out of Catholicism, but it's just the truth. It's history. They used the teaching of purgatory to raise money because they did what was called indulgences. And the indulgence was they would send, they would send people, representatives of the Catholic Church, to these little towns and hamlets uh, throughout Germany and Europe uh, who would bring the message of purgatory. That being... If you died, um, uh, let's say, believing in Christ, but there was some sin that was never, that you never had time to make right, you had to sort of pay it off in purgatory. And you would sit in purgatory in not a great condition until the sin was paid off, and then you were sprung. However, if you did what the Catholic representative said, which was give money to the Catholic Church on behalf of your loved ones, 
in purgatory, they were sprung prematurely. No, no, this was indulgences. This was indulgences. And so the, the, the king of indulgence takers, the, the, great, the greatest uh, fundraiser for the Catholic Church was Johann Tetzel. And Johann was, just had a golden tongue. And he would go into these little uh, places, and he would say this, as soon as your coins clang in the bottom of this cup, your loved ones are delivered from purgatory. Your grandma's coming out. Your grandpa's coming out. Uh, whoever is coming, they'll come out as soon as you give. And that's how they raise the money to build the great cathedrals. I, I'm in a mood tonight, so I'm going to ask you a question. Are there any examples of modern-day indulgences? Are you told that you buy blessings from God? If you send me whatever amount, let's say it's November 21st, if you send in $21 on November 21st, God told me you're going to have 21 blessings in the days to come. I mean, that stuff happens all the time. Now, what is that? That's a modern-day indulgence. Because you're sending money to purchase a blessing that's not even real. Now, I believe in sowing. I believe in genuine sowing to, to further God's work. But I don't believe in giving God sheep fake promises. I won't do it because I'm going to answer to God for that. But that's an indulgence. So you're, in answer to your question, the truth is, Paul said, absent from the body, I'm present with the Lord. Absent from the body, I'm present with the Lord, okay? So my body goes into the ground because it's, it's under the curse, or my body. It's going to die. It's going to decay. It's going to turn to ashes if you give it long enough. But my soul immediately goes into the presence of the Lord, immediately. Absent from the body, present with the Lord, okay? Now, when the rapture happens... God is going to pull that dead body out of the ground. It's going to be transformed into a glorified body like what Christ had. What was Christ called? The first fruits. He's the first fruit. He's the first to be raised from the dead under the new covenant. Post-shed blood, he's the first to be raised, and he was raised with a glorified body. He ate, and he walked through doors that were locked. Cool. That's going to be cool. All right? I believe he thought and he was there. Because at one time we're told they're in a room and all of a sudden he's standing there. Hello. So, so the soul goes into God's presence, but the body goes down into the grave. When it comes out, it's reunited with the soul and goes up to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's what Scripture teaches. Does that help? Yes, sir. Okay. I have one more. Yeah. Why do you think the Bible is not chronological? Oh, that's a good question. Why is it not chronological? Um, I could give you an off-the-cuff answer, but I'd rather give you a more complete one, because, yeah, it's not chronological. Malachi was not the last uh, book. Um. So let me check on that, and I'll do it next time. I want to be sure I give you full-blown encyclopedic answer, okay? All right. Anyone else?
That's it. What is a sin not leading to death? Huh? What is an example of a sin not leading to death in First John? Oh, the sin not leading to death. Well, there is a sin that leads to death. Um, there is a sin. Now, this is a little bit involved, and I won't take long with it. But John says there is a sin that leads to death, and I don't say you should pray for it. So what's he talking about? He's saying God will, some people, God will warn them and warn them and warn them and warn them. And they refuse to repent and turn. And it comes to a place where God sends a judgment. And that sin can lead to death. Case in point, Ananias and Sapphira. They sinned against the Holy Ghost. They lied to the Holy Ghost. They, they sold land. They wanted to gain points with the apostles. So they told Peter that every dime they made on the land they gave to the church, when in fact they had held some back. Now, Peter didn't even ask for it. He didn't ask for the money. He didn't tell them to go. They were not living under first century socialism. Socialism is when you're forced to give. Charity is when you want to give. Okay, so uh, Ananias goes up to Peter and says, Here, here's all the money. And the Holy Ghost told Peter on the spot, he's lying. And Peter said, you didn't lie to me. You lied to the Holy Ghost. Boom. Then here comes Sapphira, not knowing what just happened to hubby. And Peter says to her, did you sell all, did you give all the proceeds from the land? Yes. Well, they had both conspired to lie. And he said, the same feet that carried your husband out are going to carry you out. Bloom. Now, we're very thankful that kind of judgment doesn't happen in the house of God today. <laughs> because there wouldn't be very many people in churches. <laughs> because that, now, why was that so severe? It was that severe because God was wanting to establish the fear of the Lord in the early church. And so he brought a harsh judgment. But that was a sin that led to death. Are you with me? One other way is, and I'll close with this. Stand up with me as a matter of fact. And let me close with this. Another way that sin leads to death is there are sins you can do that are against your body. Everybody, watch this. Now, I know you've gotten a lot tonight, but we need to hear this. Um, the Bible says, Paul said, all other sins that you commit are outside the body. But he that commits fornication sins against his own body. It's the only sin. It's a unique sin. Because you can steal, but that doesn't do anything to your body. Um, you can break the speed limit. Unless you get in a terrible wreck, it doesn't do anything to your body. But... Fornication, sexual sin, is unique in that it harms the body. And I remember in the 1980s when AIDS came out, how I looked at that verse. There is a sin that leads to death. Sometimes people can repent 
and say, I'm sorry, Lord, please forgive me that I went there. And he forgives, but the consequences go on. I'm just being honest with you. I'm just, this is what the Bible says. And in the case of something like AIDS, it's a sin that leads to death. And, and you can pray. He said, don't even bother praying. They're going to die. Well, that's ending on a, so- a somber note tonight. Hallelujah. But, but I, I want <laughs> does that help, Johnny? No, we don't have time. I'll talk to you later. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, in other words, God gives, God gives us commands for our protection. He does. So let's go to him. Father, thank you for your blessing. We pray for your blessing. We pray for your presence. And thank you, Lord, for this strong word tonight out of 1 Peter chapter 4. Thank you, Lord God. Bless us this week. May your face shine upon us. Lead us in the good way, the narrow way that leads to life. And thank you, Lord, that you are near even at the very door. In Jesus' name, amen.